The history of science and medicine you were taught in school doesn't tell the whole story. Our legacy is full of unsung heroes who made incredible contributions that just haven't been recognized. And there are too many suppressed stories of exploitation under the guise of scientific research. As biomedical scientists and seekers of justice, we want to uncover the hidden side of science and make these stories known. People of all races, genders, nationalities, sexualities, and abilities have always been essential to pushing the field forward. It's time for us all to reclaim the bench. All right, so welcome to episode seven of Reclaim the Bench. I'm Megan. I'm Jamal. And we are excited to be wrapping up our first season with this episode. Yeah, this has been a great season. We've had lots of support. We've covered some very interesting topics. And we've also learned a lot about ourselves and about the podcast. And so we're going to, again, take some time off and come back and Mm -hmm. do it better than ever with some exciting new material. Yeah, I think we'll probably be diving a little bit into mental health. Yes. Which is a topic both of us are most passionate about, so that's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, just a few days ago, we interviewed the psychiatrist and associate professor in psychiatry at Duke, Damon Tweedy, who's also the author of Black Man in a White Coat, a book that I read a few years ago that was really eye-opening. Mm-hmm. And then we have more interviews coming up in the future, one in which we'll... Uh, talk to an individual who's a psychiatrist at Yale who's using some very interesting ways to target uh, mindfulness and uh, mental health. Yeah, trying to integrate music into healing and promoting the mind-body connection. I'm super excited about that. Me too. (laughs) So before we jump in, um, we had a sort of busy day today. It was uh, one of our coworkers' birthdays, so Mm -hmm. we went out for lunch. Piali. Happy birthday, Piali. Yeah, we got some good Indian food. It was delicious. But you watched a documentary I suggested to you this yes. weekend, right? Between yes. the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard what you thought about it. I know. So Jamal had been telling me all week, you got to watch this documentary. And so I did. And I haven't read Between the World and Me. Mm-hmm. I read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' other book, The Water Dancer. Mm-hmm. And I thought that book was amazing. But yeah, I think I told you the documentary just left me speechless. Like, it went beyond everything I know about intellectually as a person who's never experienced these things myself. So like, it's one thing to read about or have people tell you about their experiences as a person of color and specifically as a black person in this documentary. But the way that it used these, um, it was mostly like famous people speaking words from the book, right? Yep, they were, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they were in these different settings, like they were at Howard University and they were in West Baltimore. Yep. And just being put in that uh, setting and having those words spoken so passionately, it was like a really visceral experience of like, mm-hmm. this is what the people around me in my country are experiencing. Yeah, I thought it was very well done, um, especially because it's coming from the perspective of his book, which was a memoir written mm-hmm. towards his son. Yeah. So this book was 
you know, to his son. And this was about what he had experienced in life and for what his son should consider in his life journey. Much different than the book that Benjamin Franklin wrote as a memoir to his son. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you ever read that one. No. It's kind of, it's more boring too. (laughs) What's it called? Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) (laughs) You write a memoir to your son and you just name it after yourself. He wrote it, but he wrote it over the course of like 30 years. And he was like, this is going to be for my kids so they can know like where I came from. It Mm. was like a real time rags to riches type of story. But this was super captivating. Yes. Um, But before we move off this topic, what was, if you had to pick one, the one most either chilling or eye-opening or captivating, like, um, retelling that you've seen in the documentary? There were so many. I mean, both when Prince Jones' mom and Breonna Taylor's mom were mm. being interviewed. I didn't even know the story of Prince Jones. I mean, we were pretty young, I guess, when... Uh, he was killed. Yeah. So I had not heard his story before. But both both of these mothers who experienced such horrendous, needless loss, it was kind of striking to me how, like, matter-of-factly they were talking about it. Yeah. Like, they have had to come to terms with the fact that their children were outright murdered yeah. for no reason, and then the situation lied about with no justice yeah. at all for their ch- children's killings. Yeah, and hearing Brianna Taylor's mom talk about the runaround that she got. Yes. And then to find out in the way that she did a day later. All they told her is 12 hours after she found out, the police had come to her daughter's apartment and there were gunshots. All she found out was, oh, she's still in the apartment. Like she was, That was only context, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After they sort of interrogated her without yes. her even knowing. She didn't even know she was being interrogated mm-hmm. when they did, right? But anyway, so guys, check it out. I think it's a great piece of work mm-hmm. by ta Coates. And um, also check out the book that he wrote, which I think was in 2015. That sounds right. Yeah. So, so what are we talking about today? So I think this is a topic that you first introduced me to, and I am expecting to learn from you today. I'm excited about that. This is Vivian Thomas. He's not Dr. Vivian Thomas, right? He has a LLD, okay. which is an honorary doctorate degree. Okay. And it was sort of, as we'll find out, given to him so that he could be called doctor later in life when hmm. he was able to get recognition. Okay. So, but but yeah, he has no formal education. As far, as far as medical or scientific training is concerned. All right. So why are we talking about Vivian Thomas today? Well, we're talking about Vivian Thomas because he was a pioneer in cardiac surgery, and he made major contributions to the field of cardiac surgery. His technique that he perfected and discovered and pioneered is still being used today, yet he wouldn't be on our podcast if he didn't have some form of adversity mm-hmm. where his work wasn't recognized. And that is the story of Vivian Thomas. Despite making these pioneering contributions in the 30s and 40s, his work was not recognized and was recognized by others while he set off on the sidelines. So we'll be covering his life, 
his contribution. And Megan, I'm going to be relying on you heavily to explain yep. a lot of the medical parts and the heart anatomy and what it really meant for him to discover the things that he discovered. Hopefully I can describe it clearly enough, but be sure to slow me down if I'm not making sense. <laughs> now you wrote here, Thomas is as much of an unsung hero in science and medicine as I have ever seen. That's a bold statement. So Yeah, and I knew about Vivian Thomas for a little while now, but doing research for this episode, I think his contributions compared to his recognition is as much of an unsung hero as I've ever seen. So where does the story start? Where did he grow up? So he grew up in Nashville, but he was born in 1910 in New Iberia, Louisiana. And he was the grandson. He had a brother, Mm -hmm. and they were grandsons of a slave. Wow. And that was a story that was constantly told by his father mm-hmm. uh, being repeated to his sons that, hey, my father was a slave. My father picked cotton. And, you know, this is kind of his perspective of the world and trying to offer that framework and why him and his brother should achieve as much as they possibly could achieve. So Vivian Thomas had always been a pretty smart guy. He went to a high school in Nashville called Pearl High. Now, this school is sort of famous. It's called Martin Luther King Jr. now, hmm. but it's sort of famous for, at the time, in the 20s, when he went to high school, when Thomas went to high school, as being a place that offered exceptional education. Wow. So, this was the segregated South, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, not only was it, the school segregated, but it was resource depleted, as many segregated schools now still yeah. are, right? But what the teachers did was... They were able to pull their own life sort of resources and knowledge and strategies to help intertwine within a curriculum that was being taught to these Mm. individuals to help them get out of the mindset of feeling inferior and really go for their goals. Do you have any idea where these teachers came from? Did they come from the same community that Thomas grew up in or... I'm not exactly sure, but I would imagine that that was the case. Mm-hmm. Now, I read about the school that it's like a magnet school that attracts gifted and talented students mm. from all over the country. Wow. So, yeah, I'm not sure if it's magnet in private or magnet in public, but apparently it's still a pretty highly touted school. And people like Vivian Thomas were some of their, uh, you know, exceptional students who made it. So what were his next plans after high school? So upon graduating high school, Thomas wanted to be a physician. He wanted to go to medical school to be a doctor, and he enrolled in Tennessee State University. But this was a time around 1928 that the U.S. was, and the whole world really, was suffering um, from the Great Depression or what would lead to the most, the, the biggest downturn effects of the Great Depression. So Thomas was saving up money. He was a carpenter. Uh, He was working at Vanderbilt University as a carpenter. But when he went to collect the funds that he had saved up to go to medical school, Mm -hmm. he learned that they had been completely wiped out. No. The bank. Yeah, the bank went under. So he lost all of his savings and decided to sort of resave and 
put that part of his career on hold. And that's what, well, he, he tried to do at least. Mm -hmm. So in 1929, after working as a carpenter at Vanderbilt, he was looking for more work that he could do to save up to get back to school when an offer was presented for him to work under um, a now famous surgeon, Alfred Blaylock, who was working at Vanderbilt at the time. So he went from being a carpenter to a surgical technician with no surgical training? Yeah, so apparently, so Blaylock was this up-and-coming surgeon from Georgia, and he was a pretty smart guy himself. He had skipped a couple grades and finished college at 19, and then he went to Hopkins for medical school. Yeah, but he was kind of like a run-in-the-mill student there, but, you know, still Hopkins, even at the time, was like pretty... Uh, premier place to get a medical education and then when he started working at Vanderbilt he was more into the science and discovery of surgery and what new techniques can be developed and what they could learn and so this was right around the time that he ran into uh, Vivian Thomas okay and so Thomas didn't really have much of a background or in, in my research at all any background in anatomy but he learned anatomy from Blaylock. Hmm. However, even before learning those fundamental things, on his first day of work, he like showed up, you know, what do you want me to do? He was assisting in um, surgeries that they were doing, which I believe at that time was also on dogs. Okay. So So, they were doing research. Yeah, they were doing research. It was in a lab and he got assisted and apparently had been like really good. I wonder how they met. Like there's not really any information about that. No, um, I was looking for that too. Let me see. I thought it was, he was sort of introduced. Somebody introduced mm. him, but I'm not exactly sure. Interesting, because it seems like they'd be running in different circles. Yeah, but he kind of was already working at the university anyway, mm. doing the carpentry work. Right, right, okay. So this guy starting up a lab, you know, probably needed help. Somebody True. to do menial work. Yeah, somebody who's skilled with their hands, probably. Yeah. Okay. And it was it was known that Thomas was pretty exceptional from the beginning because the way he picked up on the education, anatomy, and physiology, mm-hmm. and in the lab. And this was pretty evident because Blaylock sort of spazzed on him one time and, like, yelled at him and yeah. degraded him. And Thomas was like, I'm out. Yeah. So, as we'll hear throughout this story, Thomas had multiple opportunities or at least it was occasions where he said, I'm going to finally pick up where I left off and go back to college. So he walked out on him. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a black man walking out on a prestigious white surgeon in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And Blaylock chased him out the door and was like, I'm sorry. It'll never happen again. Yeah, this is how valuable he was to him. So he brought him back in and... They did a lot of work on shock, which is something we covered before, right? Yes, yeah. So that's a throwback to uh, Charles Drew, who did a lot of work on fluid replacement and shock. So at the time, these two guys were working on treatments for shock and something called crush syndrome. Now, you explained what shock was in our Charles Drew episode, Mm -hmm. which was like episode three. I think so. Uh, But uh, I don't know what crush syndrome is. Yeah, so uh, I'll be honest, I did have to refresh my memory about this. I don't think we covered it for a long time in med school. It's not something that's very 
common unless maybe you're working in the emergency fields. Mm. So crush syndrome is a syndrome of organ failure that can happen when someone's had a prolonged crush injury, usually to a limb, like an arm or a leg, because if you have a, a prolonged crush injury to your torso or head, you have other problems. So literally crush. When you say crush injury, yeah. you mean like a like car? A car or... Like, yeah, being trapped in a car accident. Oh, man. Or like working at a factory. and Exactly. And I read that one of the most common cases where you see a lot of crush injury is earthquakes, like people having buildings collapse on them really? or furniture. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, just like other accidents, explosions, where something large and heavy can fall on someone's limb. Uh, trapping them and completely crushing the muscle. So how do surgeons, how could a surgeon contribute to something like that? Yeah, right? Because the surgeon's not out in the field, so it's pretty interesting. Well, well even at the hospital, like, what, yeah. like, how do you treat as a surgeon when you get a body part crushed if it's not like, <laughs> detached or something? Well, so what you are doing here in most cases is preventing the person from dying. So it's not even so much about saving the limb. So what can happen is when you have so much muscle being crushed, we have a lot of metabolites that are built up in our muscle cells that are supposed to remain within those muscle cells. Mm. There's very controlled release of substances in and out of the cells into the bloodstream. When you need things to be excreted from your body, that's what the kidneys do. The kidneys are filtering your blood constantly and Mm. taking out any toxins, along with the liver. The liver also breaks down toxins. And then the kidney helps to get rid of anything that's excess and conserve the things that you do need. And then the result is urine, which helps you get rid of these substances from the body. But when you have these crush injuries, actually, the interesting thing is, hopefully none of you are ever in this situation, but a first aid tip. If you come across someone whose arm or leg is severely crushed, and it's been like that for more than 10 minutes, you don't actually want to move the thing off of them. Mm. You want to keep it there and actually tie a tourniquet around the limb to prevent any blood flow. I mean, at this point, like, the limb is pretty much gone, you're assuming. Yeah. So what you're doing now is preventing the person from dying because when blood gets back into that limb, it all of a sudden sweeps huge amounts of toxic substances from these dead muscle cells into the kidney. And that just completely overflows the kidney's ability to filter out all those toxic waste products. Mm. They build up in the tubules of the kidney. And you can think of it as just like a clogged filtration duct. Like it just all builds up. It starts to cause um, death of the kidney cells themselves. And then what actually can be fatal is kidney failure from these crush injuries. I had no idea about right? all of that. Isn't yeah. that crazy? That is, yeah, that is pretty crazy. So if something were to fall on my, like, shin, mm-hmm. right, or my, like, lower part of my leg, right? Yeah. Somebody should, or I should tie a tourniquet around, mm-hmm. like, my thigh or, like, above my knee. Yes, that's right. And, and actually, I have a note, that's why we wear shin guards in soccer, Because even though it's not like a severe crush, if you hit the shin just right and it punctures some of the muscle, your calf is kind of an unusual part of the body because it's a pretty enclosed compartment for the muscles. And you can have something called compartment syndrome where the buildup of fluids 
isn't able to be released. And all that fluid causes so much internal pressure on the muscles that you can actually have high levels of muscle cell death just within the leg, just from like a really severe injury to the shin. Wow. Yeah, and that can be oh fatal. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've seen some pretty pretty bad shin injuries. Yeah. Anderson Silva, for you guys out there, it's a little cringy, but Google Anderson Silva leg injury. He oh. broke his tibia amphibia with a leg kick during an MMA match. Oh, my gosh. In the same year that the Louisville basketball player, I can't think of his name right now, and Paul George, actually, uh, who played for Indiana Pacers at the time, both of these guys came down after a dunk. And, you know, these guys can jump pretty high, a lot of power, and they both came down. And, no. Yeah, by the look of your face, I'm not going <laughs> to finish that sentence. <laughs> okay, we had to watch but, some of those videos in anatomy class. Oh, really? Actually shown to us by the professor whose office we're sitting in right now oh, recording nice. this. <laughs> he liked to show us those videos of people's bones uh, popping out yeah, of their I like, legs. I like to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> All right, so you're both serial killers, noted. <laughs> um, anyway. So that's what these guys were working on at the time. Yeah, so they, kind of similar to shock, like if, for a brief reminder, this is when there's not enough blood volume in your body. So Charles Drew knew that the important thing to do was just to give a lot of hydration and rebalance all those electrolytes that your body really needs. Mm. So it's similar here. If you give a huge amount of fluid, it is kind of like, sweeping those toxic metabolites up in this huge fluid volume and at least with that much water kind of diluting out the toxins especially myoglobin which is an oxygen carrying molecule that's Mm -hmm. in your um, muscles especially but then it can break down into these very toxic substances when it's released in these huge quantities so giving this huge amount of water just dilutes out all the all the metabolites and allows your kidney to have more time to process them and prevents that tubular necrosis is what it's called. Wow. We we all learned something here. <laughs> I hope so. Was that clear enough? That that was pretty clear. Okay. Yeah. I might have to listen back to it myself a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> or read these notes that you wrote. <laughs> I know, I should have gotten a, a friend who's really interested in the kidney on here. <laughs> <laughs> So, actually, I didn't know about Crush Syndrome at all, even mm-hmm. doing the research. I was too uh, lazy to look into it, and I just relied that you would figure yeah. it out for me. <laughs> but um, I gotcha. it definitely seems super far away from what they would do next, which is heart surgery. Yeah. And cardiovascular surgery. Yeah, I wonder how they how the, the team of um, Blaylock and Thomas went from crush injury to cardiac yeah. like birth defects. It it might have been, I, I'm speculating here, I have no evidence for mm-hmm. this, but it might have been that Blaylock, who had a lot of resistance in trying to go into cardiac surgery, maybe always wanted to do it, and just was like, hey, let's just kind of play around with it, and hmm. let's experiment in it. Because what everybody knows about Blaylock and Thomas mm-hmm. happened at Johns Hopkins, but actually before they went there, they were they were just beginning a cardiac surgery program at Vanderbilt. Okay. And some sort of historical context, there had been heart surgeries before, Mm -hmm. but there weren't perfected techniques and there were no cardiac surgeons at the time. There were nobody who identified as like a cardiac surgeon. It wasn't a specialty yet. Wow. So this was something that was a little taboo and that 
Blaylock had a lot of pushback on, <laughs> saying, hey, I want to operate on a heart. Why so taboo? Just because it was considered so dangerous and risky? I have It's, it's hard to think about it now, mm-hmm. right, with how many surgeries are being done now. But maybe, like, if you think about, uh, maybe it was the same for neurosurgery, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe just those two vital organs, it was just, like, too scary to approach. Yeah. Like, what if something happens to the heart? The right. person is dead mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, maybe doing surgery on an appendix or something yeah or appen- yeah. yeah, something like that or tonsils right? yeah right um, so maybe that's why that happened but hmm. these guys they um they kind of dabbled in cardiac surgery and made some initial discoveries when at the time nobody else was really pioneering these things okay so it kind of got the attention of not kind of it did it got the attention of john hopkins yeah who also must have been thinking you know, we should really consider doing cardiac surgery. Mm. And so they were able to figure out that Blaylock was at Vanderbilt doing this research and they recruited him. Okay. So Vanderbilt is in Nashville, mm-hmm. right? Johns Hopkins is in Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. So when Blaylock got recruited to Johns Hopkins, he asked for Thomas to come. Again, this was, he chased Thomas out the door at Vanderbilt. Yeah. This was somebody who he really wanted to work with and somebody who he probably could have helped get to medical school, to be honest. Yeah, right. At this point, if he knows this man is so talented, why? I mean, it just seems like a completely selfish decision to keep him as his right hand man. Yeah, definitely. These guys had a weird relationship. Yeah. You know, it wasn't that Blaylock treated Thomas badly. Thomas also said said such in his autobiography, it was that he was complicit Mm. in the system that existed, especially when they moved to Hopkins, that sort of rubbed Thomas the wrong way, because Blaylock was kind of like ignoring different things. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about that in a second, like the things that he was ignoring. And Thomas is like, well, these things are happening to me, and actually, I'd rather just go to medical school, because this is what I really want to do. Right. And, and he's clearly gifted. He's like clearly gifted. he could have made amazing. I mean, he did make amazing contributions to the field. But if he had that autonomy, I'm sure he could have done that much more. Oh yeah, yeah. But Blaylock, even at one point, Blaylock's wife was like, "Listen, why are you holding this kid back?" And mm. he was like, "He's too valuable." He's like, "We're on the cusp of discovery. If I give him up, then who can replace him?" So wow. one of the, so the first legitimate bona fide cardiac surgeon. Mm-hmm. Alfred Blaylock entirely relied on one guy who was like a lab tech. That's how good this guy was. With no formal training. With again. no formal training. Yeah. He was he was better than Blaylock. And I'll tell you more about that when, yeah. we, when we get to the blue baby syndrome. Okay. So Thomas had to tell his wife and his two daughters, his two young daughters at the time, like, we're going to move from Nashville to... Baltimore. And Baltimore was also a part of this segregated South. Yeah. But this was a different experience. I guess from what I read, Nashville was maybe like more of a community. Everything was segregated, but Thomas was already well adjusted from living there. Sure. But at Hopkins, Mm -hmm. it was a more fast paced, booming city. Segregation was really like outright, but also still in the weeds like it was still a lot of little nuances that was really restricting people of color in baltimore 
all the way from real estate and job opportunity and transportation. Yeah, and because of these, uh, because of the segregation, there were things such as, like, for instance, TB was seven times higher in black communities than they were in white communities because the housing density was so much more densely mm-hmm. populated in segregated communities than they were in the more suburban white communities. Imagine that a much higher rate of respiratory disease in black communities. That doesn't sound familiar to today uh, at all, does it? Yeah, it's pretty clever. Not at all. That's pretty Not clever. We definitely don't have those <laughs> problems anymore in 2020. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this was a, a pretty big um, public health concern. Yeah. And so by just pushing these these individuals who are like, lower class right into a densely populated area and Mm -hmm. kind of just letting them survive on their own yeah that's what existed at the time i mean as i'm saying i'm trying to make it sound dramatic but it sounds so familiar it's what we still exist today even in a city like buffalo we still have tenement buildings and projects that's really segregated and food restricted and resource restricted we still live in an extremely segregated city and it's not unusual i mean like most of the cities in this country are segregated. Yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, the Northeast, we have, like, all of mm-hmm. our major cities are pretty segregated. And, yeah. and those those things are sort of being revealed through COVID-19, right? Yeah. And I think the Rust Belt is some of the worst of it. I've only ever lived in Rust Belt cities, mm-hmm. like Rochester, Buffalo, Pittsburgh. Yeah. But they are some of the areas with lowest um, income in the cities and also with the highest racial disparities in or racial differences in the neighborhoods people live in. So like areas where you have 97% white people versus areas with 97% black, that also coincides with not having resources being put into the cities. Yeah. And this, this is, this is what we call institutional racism, right? Yeah. Housing institution, education Mm -hmm. institution, health institution so yeah as i was just kind of reading off my notes here talking to you guys i was just thinking like i'm trying to really emphasize how bad this was but it really especially in baltimore is it's pretty much the same you know it's not it's not much different we talked what was our last episode was on the freedom Freedom house House. and we talked about the hill hillside Mm, hill district hill district in pittsburgh yeah and we talked about a time that was in the 60s and 70s and yeah. how not much has changed, mm-hmm. at least from the local government perspective yep. in Hill District now. And uh, Between the World and Me, speaking of Baltimore, takes mm. place in Baltimore. Yep. A lot of his experiences. Uh, when he was at Howard mm-hmm. University, yeah. So aside from the segregation and racial disparities that Thomas and his family had to adapt to mm-hmm. in Baltimore, he had the same amount of racial prejudice and discrimination where he worked at Johns Hopkins. So all the black people that was employed at Hopkins at this time, which was in the 1930s, Mm -hmm. well, in the 1940s, they first got there in 1941, were all maintenance people, all janitors. So All of the other black people working at Hopkins. So Thomas had been working for... Blaylock for some years now, or I think it was like 10 or 12 years they worked together at at Vanderbilt, right? So So, this guy's a highly qualified lab tech at this point, at the very least. Yeah, he he was running Blaylock's lab at Vanderbilt. He was the lab supervisor. It it was his lab, essentially, to 
um, have some relief for Blaylock to do like surgeries and work mm-hmm. in a clinic. So yeah, he ran the whole thing. And he comes to Hopkins and on day one, he tries to like just walk in with Blaylock and yeah. they're like, you can't come in this way. So he had what? to use a back door for colored people. Oh my And gosh. he had to use all the colored bathrooms uh-huh. and equipment that the other um, black people that were janitors there. And what's crazy about this is that even though he was a lab tech and mm-hmm. he had his white coat that he was kind of embarrassed to wear because of the dirty looks he was getting from other mm. people, he was still on the books as a janitor. It was against their policy to promote him. So because of his job, it's still kind of like this in hospitals now, like the pay scale, like yeah. pay structure. Because of his job title as a janitor or a service worker one mm-hmm. or whatever, server work is th- ser- service worker three, his pay was pretty limited. So he oh comes to gosh. Hopkins, he moves, he's enduring all these racial disparities, and Blaylock is kind of like oblivious. Like, yeah, yeah, just deal with it so you can, like, work in the lab. You know, he was nice to Thomas, but, again, he was complicit. He wasn't good to him, yeah. yeah. So that's what was happening in Thomas's life at the time. He just had to. Oh, my to, God. Yeah, he, he just had to adapt. Standing by and watching Blaylock get recruited by this prestigious university for work that Thomas was so instrumental in. Having Blaylock get all this recognition, I'm sure a great salary. Just of course, working it with the crowd of Baltimore and going to social events and everything, mm-hmm. right? You, there's something about that. Yeah, so exactly, he was he was pretty well known, and he was making a name for himself. And of course, Thomas wasn't making much money. I did the conversion, so he was making about. Two hundred and twenty to two hundred and forty dollars a week. Oh, um, Thomas, equivalent um, to today's money. What? Yeah, and as essentially, again, he was a he ran the lab. He was a lab manager, the lab supervisor, but was paid as a janitor. So that was about two hundred something dollars a week. So he's making about twelve thousand dollars a year. Yeah, so yeah, so he's making what somebody today would make at McDonald's, but to run a lab. I think less. Uh, by, yeah. I think minimum, at least in New York, minimum wage is higher than that. That's true. Yes, at least it's probably twelve fifty or something like that. So, wow, because he was raising two daughters and had moved his wife yeah. down here, um, down there, he needed extra money. So those social gatherings that Blaylock was attending, mm-hmm. he would hire Thomas as a waiter for those social parties. So that he can make ends meet. This is making me so... I can just feel the fury rising. Like, how how did Thomas withstand this indignity? I mean, I know that segregation was just, I guess, a fact of life then. But can you imagine, like, how that would feel to your psyche day in and day out? Like, knowing that you're the one behind this research. But then you have to go and serve people. Like, classified as a janitor serving these fancy people as their bartender and we know how people treat servers they treat them like i don't think we swear on this podcast but they treat them not very well like crap (laughs) yeah like crap (laughs) (laughs) and while blaylock brags about the innovation that he's working on and thomas is kind of like listening and chiming in yeah so you know what you spoke about as far as his psyche i think Mm -hmm. it was even worse in his wife his wife Mm -hmm. had so much hope 
for Thomas mm. and knew how smart he was and right. knew how talented he was. And this guy was, you know, was supposed to go to medical school and make a name for himself. He probably could have been like another Charles Drew who if this was the same time period. So, you know, he just ended up as a part-time waiter, full-time lab supervisor, janitor. So this is approaching a time. So this is already set in place and they're working on cardiac surgery mm-hmm. down at Johns Hopkins. And then Blaylock was approached by another Hopkins physician named Helen Talsing. Talsing. And she I'm surprised they even had women at this time. <laughs> yeah, this was also she was also a minority. Oh wow. That, yeah, no, not not like a racial minority, oh. but but she was a minority and that it wasn't yeah. a lot of women working there at the time either. And her and Thomas would often talk about that and hmm. in the movie and in um an article I wrote it said that she joked and um, said, at least they let me in the front door and like this sort of sarcasm, like, yeah, yeah we're, we're both mm-hmm. not great, but at least I can walk through the front door. Yeah. So, yeah, she was a pediatrician at the time and mm-hmm. she was coming across a lot of children that suffered from something called blue baby syndrome. Mm-hmm. And she had expressed that it was, you know, essentially 100% fatal. And if a baby got mm-hmm. this disorder which we're going to need your help to mm-hmm. figure out what it is then that was it for the child and thought that Blaylock and his team which was Thomas mm-hmm. could hopefully come up with some type of um, method to quote reorganize the tubes <laughs> I think that's what the quote was that that, that she said reconnect the pipes yeah or re, yeah, reconnect <laughs> the pipes either way um, reorganize the tubes reconnect the pipes yeah so can you tell us more about like what blue baby syndrome is and what it might mean to reconnect the pipes? Yeah. Because really, I have no idea. I can. I also had to dig back into my old med school books for this one. But first of all, can you say the other name for blue baby syndrome? Well, you know, I skipped it for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot because <laughs> I'm cruel. Uh, tetra... Tetra... Lo- Tetralogy of Fallot. <laughs> that was exactly wrong. <laughs> Are you serious? It's, it's called Tetralogy of Fallot. <sighs> Why would you do that to me? <laughs> because I knew the result would be comedy. You gold. thought that, okay, he might be able to get past the first word, but I yeah. know he's not going to get the yeah, second exactly. word. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Tetralogy of Fallot. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I skipped. Oh, all right. Well, okay, this is a little bit of a complicated syndrome. First, I think we need to go back and do a little bit of anatomy of the heart. So stick with me here. So do you know how there's two sides of the heart, the right and left side? Yes. Okay. The atrium. Um, or not. Yes, there are two atria. And two ventricles. So you have a right atrium and ventricle and a left atrium and ventricle. One of them pumps blood to your lungs, and that is your right heart. And one of them pumps blood to the rest of your body, and that's your left heart. Mm, So at the same time, your right heart is pumping blood to the lungs. That's the blood that has come to your heart from the body after being used by all the different tissues. So the oxygen has been taken out, carbon dioxide has been diffused in because all of your cells need oxygen to create energy and then 
carbon dioxide is the byproduct. We're really getting into biochem here, yeah. but um, I, it's important to understand. So do you remember the difference between an artery and a vein? I think we went over this before. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. actually I do. Nice. The artery mm-hmm. pumps blood from the heart. Yeah. And the vein pumps blood to the heart. That's right. Okay. When I was very confident, I actually wasn't. I just knew it's a 50-50 chance from last time you asked me. (laughs) So I just guessed. You switched it. (laughs) I was sweating, though. I was sweating. When I do perfusions, I just just cut and filter blood. I don't don't actually know what's going on. Yeah, so even though we work with mice hearts, um, you don't actually know what you're looking at. As long as the brain is... There you go. Yeah, that's all you really have to know. (laughs) It's the way we need it to be. That's all. All right. So blood is traveling through the veins. It's already been um, pumped to the entire body through the arteries. Oxygen flows into the tissue. Carbon dioxide flows into the blood. And so this blood that needs to get more oxygen travels into the right side of the heart. From there, it's pumped into the lungs. In the lungs, you have gas exchange. So when you breathe in, you are taking in oxygen, and that flows into your blood. And when you breathe out, you're exhaling the extra carbon dioxide that you had carried from the tissues. That's a waste gas that you don't need. So then once the blood has, once the oxygen has diffused into the blood, then it travels into the left side of the heart. And from there, it's pumped out through the aorta into the entire body. So that's basic heart anatomy. You following? I'm following. All right. I hope. Are you guys at home following? I know. I hope they're following. I hope I haven't lost them. I had some preliminary uh, introduction to this before. Okay. (laughs) So it's kind of coming back. All right. And my tablet's about to die, so I'm switching my notes onto my phone. Sounds good. All right. So this condition, Tetralogy of Fallot, is actually a congenital heart condition that is composed of four separate defects. And these all occur together, and some of them are kind of compensation for other problems going on in the heart. But this is happening while um, a fetus is developing in utero. There are a few different um, risk factors for this. This include maternal infection during pregnancy, such as rubella, maternal alcohol use or poor nutrition during pregnancy, presence of Down syndrome in the baby, so it's often associated with Down syndrome, mm. um, and also the older, an older age of the mother, so above 40, which is also a risk for Down syndrome. Above 40, there's just higher risk of birth defects in general. So Down syndrome has some relationship with the function of the heart? Yeah. So it Hmm. is an extra chromosome. And even though you think of it, the average person thinks more of the um, typical changes in facial structure and um, cognitive abilities. Mm -hmm. You have this extra chromosome in every tissue throughout the body. So it does affect most Mm. organs in some way or another. That's a, that's, I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Chromosome 21, right? Trisomy 21? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So tetralogy of Fallot can occur either with Down syndrome or um, other like chromosomal conditions or just separately on its own. And sometimes they don't even know the cause. 
So I was taught this mnemonic in med school that is one of the, it makes no sense. It's called oven. (laughs) And I don't know if you read it, but it, so a mnemonic, usually the first letters are supposed to stand for like a word that then you remember. This mnemonic does not do that. (laughs) Yeah. So actually I didn't read these notes, but I was going to correct the spelling. I thought you were falling asleep. Nope. When you were writing a note. So I'm like, why is there so many N's yeah. in particular? <laughs> so this is how my anatomy professor taught us. It starts out strong. The, so, the anatomy professor who runs this? No, studio? actually it was a different one. Oh. We had a lot of anatomy professors. Mm-hmm. All right, so oven. It starts out strong with the O. Overriding aorta. So that's an O word. Okay, fine. Okay. So the aorta, which I said is that vessel that takes the oxygen-rich blood from the heart to go to the entire body... This is too large, and actually it is receiving blood from both the right and left sides of the heart. Mm. Normally, these are completely walled off from each other. Okay. So the aorta should only be getting blood from the left side of the heart. The next thing is V. V is also okay. V is just ventricular septal defect. So like I said, normally the two sides of the heart are walled off from each other. In this case, there's a hole in the septum or wall that, again, is allowing blood to mix between the right and left sides of the heart. And this is not good because normally blood coming into the right side is that oxygen-poor blood, blood in the left side is the oxygen-rich blood, and you want the blood to be oxygen-rich when it's going to the whole body so that it can be utilized by the tissues. If you have them mixing, there's going to be a lower um, level of oxygen reaching the tissues. So septo means wall? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, this is where the mnemonic starts to go downhill. So O and V were okay. Now we're on E. And my anatomy professor is like, okay, so for E, we have pulmonary stenosis. (laughs) So there's just a random E in one of the words. And they're like, all right, we'll throw this in. (laughs) So for this part of the defect, the opening of the pulmonary artery from mm-hmm. the right side of the heart, going from the right side to the lungs, is too small. So normally you wouldn't have, the right side of the heart doesn't have to overcome much pressure to get the blood into the lungs to receive oxygen. But when the hole is too small, you just don't have enough blood getting through to have the normal gas exchange. And then finally N is similar to E. We have right ventricular hypertrophy. <laughs> Which so, is not a typo. It is not You're a typo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So because the opening for the right side of the heart is so small, this right side is working really, really hard to pump blood. Mm. And hypertrophy is when you have a growth of cells, a large overgrowth of cell size, basically. This is also what can happen for people who have like Heart failure, for example. If your blood pressure is really high and you have clogged arteries, your heart is working way too hard to try to pump blood to your entire body. Mm. The cells have to enlarge and they also get like less stretchy. So they're more, they're larger, but they're less uh, elastic almost. So the heart, the actual inside of the heart, the part that can hold blood gets much smaller. So the cells getting bigger is encroaching on the chambers full of blood. Basically, Uh, so the heart can hold less blood at any one time. So every time it pumps, you're getting less blood to the body. So the heart then has to work that much more, and it just becomes this vicious cycle. 
So this can become dangerously enlarged and just overall cause poor heart function. So like you said, at this time, the disease was lethal in babies or young toddlers, and there were no known treatments. So children can survive for a few years afterwards, and they'll have these spells when overexerted or overexcited, maybe after feeding or crying, where the baby just completely turns blue because their heart can't work hard enough to overcome all these defects and get enough oxygen to their body. And actually, toddlers like have this instinctive urge to like squat down because that pushes more blood into the heart and from there pushes yeah. it into the lungs. So, like, if you see a child, I mean, this doesn't happen much anymore because we are screening for all of these heart defects at birth. But if you saw that in a child, that's one syndrome or symptom. Yeah, apparently Helen Tausig, the pediatrician, sort of found this out because yeah. the the kids were squatting down mm. in that position just yeah. naturally, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. And they found that it just worked better. Yeah, right? yeah. And also, speaking of newborn screening... Just a side note, the newborn screening tests for, like, uh, genetic conditions and um, metabolic conditions that's done at birth for all babies, like when they take a little bit of their blood and then send it out for testing, that idea was developed here in Buffalo by a faculty at our university. Really? Like 50 years ago. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's one of our legacies, so that's pretty cool. So, did you mention TET spells? So I didn't, I don't know if I said the name, but that's what happens when the kids turn blue. They're called oh, tet okay. spells. I, okay, so that that's just when they turn blue. So I, mm-hmm. I read that when some kids were either breastfeeding or sneezing mm-hmm. or coughing, yes. that they could turn blue. Yeah, yeah, because it's harder for you to bring enough oxygen into their lungs. So because the gas exchange is compromised because you're not getting as much blood to the lungs, Another way to mitigate that is to take really deep breaths, really fill the lungs so that more blood can... Because normally if you're just sitting, resting, breathing normally, most of your lung is not inflated. Mm. Like when you are running or doing cardiac work and you feel like you're heaving and your chest gets like so much bigger, that is a real feeling. Usually you're not using the top bits of your lungs very much. Like they're not filling with air. But these kids will have to take, like, really deep breaths all the time Mm. so that blood is filling the entire lungs and they just have more surface area for gas Mm. exchange. So then if you're feeding, like, you can't breathe through your mouth or sneezing or coughing, so they're not getting as much air in. And then these compensations kind of go by the wayside and you notice the problem. Wow, poor kids. I know. Yeah. Yeah, It's a pretty, I mean, just feeling like you can't breathe like or it's not so much that they can't I don't know what it feels like but I guess if like after you've gone for a really hard workout or something it's probably similar to that like you just feel like your body's not getting enough blood you have to breathe frantically and and they feel like that probably most of the time so no wonder that uh Dr. Tausig was so adamant about someone fixing it she was dealing with patients on a day-to-day basis as a pediatrician right so she's probably like, somebody mm-hmm. needs to fix this. And their parents, who I'm sure are just yeah horrified. Yeah. And... Apparently they were desperate for anything to of work, course. for anything to happen. Mm-hmm. So Blaylock really didn't want to sort of take up this challenge at first. Really? But I think it was motivation by Thomas, who was sort of around in these conversations mm-hmm. where 
when Dr. Talsig would come and talk to Blaylock about it and okay. was like, hey, I think we can, I think we can do something about yeah. this. I think we can, you know, he came up with some strategies hmm. based on what he knew about the heart anatomy. Wow. And so Blaylock took him up on his offer. But in order to do this, they had to recreate this in their model system, which was mm-hmm. dogs. So that's also something that Thomas did by himself. Yeah, he, I wonder how they did that. Yeah, he um, created this model system and the dog to resemble Blue Baby Syndrome. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how they did it either. And then their goal was to obviously fix it, right? Mm-hmm. So after doing that, Thomas worked almost exclusively by himself, just sort of reporting to Blaylock, which okay. is not too different with how research labs are run now. Yeah. In, in some instances, right, a PI right. or a primary investigator will run a lab and will take care of all the important things and ideas and stuff like that, and the team mm-hmm. working for them will be the ones doing a lot of the, the work on the ground and even innovation. So while... Thomas was trying to figure this out. It was said that he used like some novel surgical tools that haven't even been invented yet to accomplish the goal in which he was trying to accomplish and get to areas of the heart that he needed to get to and suture areas that need to be sutured or whatever he was doing in there. And so he used around what, 200 dogs um, over a couple years in order to perfect this technique, Mm -hmm. which would eventually be termed the Blaylock Taussig shunt. Of course. Yeah. Of course. See, something's though, missing in that yeah. name, right? Yeah. And that's something we'll we'll also have to touch on in a little bit. Oh boy. And you say here that during this time as he's working, the surgical residents at Hopkins kind of heard about him and and started to train under Thomas, right? Yeah, so while he was in a lab working for these couple of years you know, when he first came in, he was a spectacle in the sense that he was a black man. In a white coat. In a white coat. Mm-hmm. But then he became a spectacle amongst the residents, surgical okay. residents, because of how good they heard he was. Mm. So they started coming and peeking into the lab and asking to learn different techniques. And Thomas, who had such an intuitive feeling for anatomy and mm-hmm. whose hands had been working in cardiac surgery for those few years and had really been perfecting his craft and trying to make these discoveries, he could do surgeries with his eyes closed. What? Yeah, in fact, that that was his preference, that he knew everywhere, he knew every part of the heart. In some places, you probably couldn't see very well anyway. Yeah. And he designed these, like, clamps to keep the, you know, certain sections open, but... Uh, it was said that he performed a lot of these surgeries on, on dogs with his eyes closed because he knew where he needed to go, and he was just that familiar with the anatomy. That is incredible. And this caught the attention of some future superstars in the field, like some surgical residents and one guy who's, like, super famous, apparently, mm-hmm. uh, Denton Cooley. Surgeons like him, along with someone named Alex Haller, Frank Spencer, Marina Spencer, and others, they credited Thomas with teaching them the surgical techniques that placed them at the forefront of medicine in the U.S. at the time. So all of those people I named at some point was like the chief of like cardiac surgery yeah. or chief of surgery at prestigious places all over the country. And I also read that, remember how we said he was a bartender for Blaylock's parties? Yeah. 
he would teach them these techniques during the day and then go to parties that he would have for residents or fellows at night and be serving them drinks. Wow. Can you imagine? How did he live with that? Oh, that maltreatment, the indignity. Yeah. He was just dedicated to bettering people's lives, I think. Yeah, I th- I think that, you know, even in his own book, what his wife has said about him, he was just really graceful. He yeah. actually loved the work and loved what he did. He just wanted to do it from a different vantage point, the mm-hmm. vantage point as a physician. And he wanted to go to medical school. This was always a dream. Yeah. Right? And, gen- and then growing up in a household where, you know, his grandfather was a slave and hearing stories about his grandfather and just feeling like he wanted to push forward and accomplish more, which was mm-hmm. instilled in him and his brother at the time. This is just something that he wanted to do. He didn't want to be the assistant yeah. for the rest of his life. Yeah. But at this time, you know, he was killing it. And those famous surgeons were all trained by him. And many more, many, many more yeah. surgeons at Hopkins were trained by um, Thomas. But again, you know, he didn't get the recognition at the time. And even now, to a certain extent, he didn't get the recognition. So the technique that he perfected and what Blaylock is known for is called a pulmonary to subclavian antistomosis. Is that how you say it? Anastomosis. Oh, my God. Phallic. <laughs> I, <laughs> I appreciate that you give it your best shot. No, you don't. Yeah. Yes, I do. It's brave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can you say the whole thing? Let's see. Pulmonary. Pulmonary to subclavian anastomosis. Yes. So I, I can pronounce Blaylock <laughs> Tausig shut. Yeah, assuming we're pronouncing that correctly. We don't even know. Yeah, I have no idea. So actually in preparation for this episode, I was looking at this. I just Googled the technique, just Blaylock Tausig, even though I know sometimes it's referred to as Blaylock Thomas Tausig. Yeah. I just Googled Blaylock Tausig and it's still being used today at some of the most prestigious hospitals in the country as yeah. the name of the technique. So I know. I saw that, too, because I looked up what the technique is also. Yeah, that was a technique he invented. Thomas. Thomas yeah. came up with the technique on his yeah. own, right? Right. Blaylock, who was pretty well-regarded person in the field, he didn't even know how to perform this technique, actually. What? Yeah, even though he got the his name got the credit for it, he knew he couldn't do it. Which is why when they finally used this technique on the first babies, mm-hmm. the first few, he had broken rules to bring Thomas in to assist with the surgery and to kind of take over the surgery because he couldn't do it himself. Nobody, no way. Nobody could do it. So the they had someone who was on their payroll as a janitor come in and do this surgery yeah. on a living patient. Yeah. He would talk him through every single step or in some instances take over to complete the job. Because nobody in in the world, nobody at Hopkins even, yeah. could, could do the technique at the time. He invented it, so he knew how to do it. And even the first well-regarded, well-known cardiac surgeon in the country, mm-hmm. Alfred Blaylock, couldn't even do this technique. So, again, he perfected this over the course of two years until mm-hmm. they got a dog named Anna, who was the first dog to success- successfully survive this surgery. And after Blaylock seen the outcome of Anna, he then went to Talsig and was like, I think we can start. And there was a lot of pushback about that, too. By who? Um, by the medical community as a whole. Okay. And by you know family members, by mm-hmm. um, clergy, 
it was just like just let nature run its course and don't get involved oh wow and but he was pretty confident after seeing what thomas can do yeah that it could happen so i think you put some notes in here about yeah i did i'll try to be quick about it because i don't want people to be falling asleep about heart anatomy but one thing that i think is really cool for a baby's development is that as a fetus so a fetus developing in utero is surrounded by fluid it's a fluid filled sac basically so their lungs are full of fluid too and that's a obviously you can't have gas exchange when it's full of fluid so Mm -hmm. Instead, they're getting oxygenated blood from the mother and then returning the deoxygenated blood to her body. And her heart and lungs are basically, her lungs are really doing all the work. The baby's heart is pumping, but it's not pumping blood into the lungs. It basically bypasses the lungs Mm. until the moment a baby is born and takes their first breath. All of a sudden, the lungs fill with air instead of fluid and the pressure drops in the lungs Blood rushes into the lungs that was before bypassing it through a normal shunt that babies have to bypass this high-pressure environment in the lungs. But Mm. at the moment of birth, this needs to reverse. The shunt needs to close. Blood goes into the lungs. And then those two sides of the heart that I described earlier start working in tandem but separately. Mm. that's the normal condition so it's really cool like instantly a baby is born the function of their heart just changes just due to like pressure drops and most of the time that's successful which is the craziest part it's fascinating isn't it yeah like it just blows my mind how often our bodies do develop successfully like yeah it's it's not uncommon to have birth defects or anything like that but also like the fact that any Mammals are just born, blows my mind. Mm. Love biology. So (laughs) cool. Um, So in this case, what Thomas's idea was, was to kind of preserve this shunt and bypass that abnormal high pressure that the blue baby syndrome caused in getting blood from the right side of the heart to the lungs. So he was creating this artificial channel, I guess, like an artificial blood vessel going from one of the main arteries. So that would contain normally oxygenated blood. But in this case, he's just using it as a source for blood to go to the pulmonary artery, which then feeds into the lungs. From there, it can be oxygenated and then gets into the left side of the heart. Wow. Yeah. That's that's pretty incredible. It is. So no wonder after he perfected this technique mm-hmm. Blaylock looked at it and said that looks like something the Lord made yeah because it sounds like he kind of based it on normal developmental anatomy to begin with and he like took inspiration from that to be like okay so how can we use that to help these babies wow yeah yeah that is even more innovative than I thought I know that is I, I didn't know it had that much this is the anatomy and right. and the normal physiology and mm-hmm. development that he had this intuitive feeling for. Yes. And he kind of knew that he could approach this question from the beginning when mm-hmm. he convinced Blaylock, I think we can do it. He yeah. must have had some type of intuitive feeling because right. if this is a disorder that is that is almost 100% like fatal, mm-hmm. he discovered the technique to fix it in less than two years. That's insane. Yeah. 
almost by itself under the supervision of Blaylock. Over two yeah. years, 200 dogs, and then, again, the famous quote is, it looks like something the Lord made, which was the movie that was based off of him. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, the HBO movie that he was played by most of, and mm. by an article that won some prestigious award that was okay. called Something the Lord Made in 1989. Wow. So after perfecting this technique, they were ready to get into it. And again, they operated with Thomas in the room, assisting slash taking over. And the first baby they operated on, um, her name was Eileen Saxon. And it wasn't entirely successful because the baby only lasted a several um, several months. Yeah. But within the next year, they operated on two more children, and those surgeries were successful, I guess. I don't know. It, oh, okay. it, it was deemed more successful. And so they published those results in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, still a very prestigious medical journal. Yeah. And in that article, Thomas' name was not mentioned once, of, of course, course right? But even if you say, okay... These were the physicians who were a part of this project. Mm -hmm. And here is a medical journal. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the problem is they had already termed it a name that excluded Thomas from the beginning. And when John Hopkins got press over these successful surgeries, Thomas was literally on the sideline. Like, Like an assistant. Yeah. Watching the photographs being taken with Talsig, Blaylock, mm-hmm. and people who had nothing to do with the surgery at all. Just people who got in on a photo op. And this was crazy because it attracted so much attention to Johns Hopkins at the time. Because people from all over the world started coming in immediately to be treated for a blue baby wow. syndrome. And this guy couldn't even get in the photograph. Also, today, when a technician has contributed to a paper, they are listed as authors on the paper. So that's not really yeah. it, so much of an at, excuse. At least in an acknowledgement. There's yeah. an acknowledgement section, too, for any medical or biomedical journal. Um, and sometimes if it's somebody who just prepared reagents or who was like a contributing person and making like solutions needed for some experiments, like their name will be put into the article. Like we have a tech that works for us and she makes the lab run and she doesn't actually do experiments but her work is essential to everybody's work and we mention her acknowledgments of every paper right also another thing about the babies only surviving a few months after the surgery what i read is that this technique was useful in keeping them alive for the first few months of life Mm -hmm. but eventually most people with this condition do have to have open heart corrective surgery once the heart grows a little Mm -hmm. bit more yeah so he was this was um a really important procedure to keep babies alive for long enough that they could eventually correct the underlying defect so it wasn't a failure i mean the fact that the babies only survived a few months it was a really important first step yeah and this caught so much attention that in like in 1945, like when this article was released, mm-hmm. they said that within one year, 200 um, children have been operated on for this surgery. By who? And Hopkins. By Thomas. I don't, I don't know if it was by Thomas. That part okay. is unclear. But of course, it would have had to have been people that he trained. Yeah, yeah. Him and Blaylock trained. Yeah. To be able to do these surgeries. Okay. So he probably trained a, 
the, a whole department, created a department that never existed anywhere else before, which yeah. is cardiac surgery. So this guy was, you know, if we want to call anybody the godfather of anything, he was mm-hmm. the godfather of surgery. Yeah. And it's a shame that even though there's a lot more information on him to research for this episode, mm-hmm. when you look at a lot of the language used in, again, certain hospitals or mm-hmm. medical books, he is largely excluded out of the picture, even though mm. his innovations and his thinking is what had these greatest contributions. This is why I said he is, if anybody, the most or one of the most unsung heroes I've yes. ever met. So after seeing this sort of flood of individuals coming in and probably participating in training the surgeons to do this technique, I think at the time he would have had to been, yeah, he was 35. That's so young. Yeah, he's only 35. Oh, my gosh. So he's super young. But remember, he still has two kids. Yeah. He still makes very little money. Yeah. Although he he did get a promotion. So the promotion got him up to what I calculated to be maybe around 40K of today's money. So still nowhere near the surgeon was making, of course. Yeah. uh Oh, of course not. I mean, in today's money, the Blaylock was probably making like, quarter million half a million something like that yeah i would guess more than a quarter million yeah Yeah. so Mm -hmm, definitely you know he had his professorship and his lab and then he had his clinical practice Mm -hmm. so so who knows how much he actually was making but thomas he he needed he still wanted a better life for him and his family and he still kind of wanted that dignity of being called a doctor and being recognized i should say for his contribution so Mm -hmm. he wanted to go to college and get to medical school, yeah. but he needed to do it expedited. Right. Right. Like he, he, he didn't have time to waste at the time mm-hmm. having raised in a family, even today to try to go to medical school in your mid thirties with a family is very taxing. Oh yeah. Very, you, you probably won't be at your peak, you know, cognitive ability no. and you have kids to raise and probably have to study all night and, where is the money going to come from yeah. to feed them, right? The wife yeah. probably wasn't working and stay-at-home mm-hmm. mom. You know, she was really down for Thomas and, you know, helping him pursue his career. So he left and he went to, he approached Morgan State University, which is an HBCU that we talked about before. Mm. And he tried to get credit for life experience. Okay. And they told him, you know, essentially you can't cut the line. What? You know, you have to start from... Like, English 101. Are you serious? Like, you have to go back from freshman year at the beginning, go through undergrad, and then, you know, obviously apply to medical school after. So he would have had to go through eight years of training. Yeah. To relearn a lot of stuff that, you know, he obviously already knew. Yeah. But he was okay with medical school, even though he probably knew a lot of that. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to get some type of credit for the contribution he made for, like, what was it, since 1929 to yeah. 1945? So for 16 years, mm-hmm. he, he wanted to get credit for all that work, running a lab. <laughs> and they were like, you know, like, you you contributed to what we're hearing about in the papers? And mm-hmm. he's like, yes, this is off the back of my work, and they can have that. Yeah, I want to do something new. Yeah, But he, he just couldn't go forward with it. So, wow. you know, he didn't have a lot of options left. So he had to go back to Blaylock and no. say... I'm I'm back, you know. I tried to leave. I tried to develop on my own. 
if he would have got assistance from Blaylock earlier, obviously mm-hmm. he he would have been okay. And again, him and Blaylock had a weird relationship, and Blaylock is like, "Fine, you can come back," and you know, I'm still like the guy that <laughs> I'm still the guy that you hate. And he's yeah. like, "It's not that I hate you." It's that you're just a part of the system. Mm-hmm. And he was like, but I'm really only coming back for the work. I'm only coming back because this is what I love to do. And so he went back and he ran a lap. He ran a lap for a total of 35 years at Hopkins. He wow. ran that lap, Blaylock's lap. Wow. Did research. He taught students. He taught surgical techniques. Mm-hmm. He mentored students. He was kind of like a legend at the time. Like yeah. people wanted to be next to him. People, mm-hmm. students coming in of all races wanted to be, know who Vivian Thomas was, like wanted to meet him and be under his tutelage. So although he wasn't able to obtain this medical degree and practice medicine, he was able to get a honorary doctorate from Hopkins in recognition for all of his contributions. This was in 1976 that he finally received this recognition. And again, it was an LLD, which is like a doctor of law, doctor of letters or something. Okay. Yeah. I, I've seen this before when I looked it up with somebody like Bill Cosby, when he was like in the news, I looked up that he had like 17 honorary doctorates. Oh, yeah. And so institutions will give an individual who made a lot of contributions to a field um, this honorary doctorate, mm-hmm. but who didn't actually pursue the curriculum or coursework. Okay. So you can't give someone an honorary MD, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. And I think that was the that was the thing that he couldn't get an honorary medical degree. Okay. But he got a honorary doctorate, which helped him out because it allowed them to hire. It allowed Hopkins to hire him as a faculty member. Oh. So okay. he was able to be an instructor and to be hired in a different capacity. Yeah. And he was then on referred to as doctor because mm-hmm. everybody knew his contributions and knew this honorary doctorate was kind of like the thing that allowed him to to finally get some recognition. That makes me feel so much better. I mean, not that it's enough, but I'm glad that by the end of his career, he was at least being recognized Yeah, while he was living. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Actually, before that, when those surgeons that I told you about earlier over time, they kind of got together and was like, we want to honor this man who built Mm -hmm. our career. And so they had a sort of famous oil painting done of him by the artist Bob Gee. And this painting is, I'm assuming still hung up in the Alfred Blaylock building. Of course, (laughs) of course it is. But um, yeah. Wow. That's a really nice portrait. Jamal put it in our notes. He looks like someone that I would want to train under. Yeah, he looks very distinguished, yeah. very chill. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of I put a couple pictures in our notes of him just so we can get that you know, know. feel of I like that as this young boy working in a lab, super talented. Mm-hmm. You know, he has this kind of look of on his face of you know enthusiasm, but really just calm and yeah. and chill. And then as he go over, he has a little pipe with mm-hmm. his lab coat on. Yeah. <laughs> and then this oil painting, which yeah. is probably around the same time. So they put together that, and they hung it up in his recognition. In 1976, he got his honorary doctorate. In 1985, which is the year that he passed away from pancreatic cancer, he published, well, this was published after his death um, in the same year, but he had written and eventually got published an autobiography called Partners of the Heart, the Vivian Thomas 
uh, Vivian Thomas and his work with Alfred Blaylock. In 1989, four years later, a, a journalist in The Washingtonian, Kate McGabe, published an award-winning article called Like Something the Lord Made. Okay. Again, after the statement mm-hmm. based on his technique. And then in 1996, Vivian Thomas Young Investigator Award was created by the Council of Cardiovascular Surgery and Anesthesiology. Mm. In 2003, there was a PBS documentary um, titled after his autobiography called Partners of the Heart that came out. In 2004, there was a movie, Something the Lord Made, that was based off of the article in which most death played. Vivian Thomas was a pretty good movie. Mm -hmm. In 2005, well, as of 2005, Hopkins assigned one of their four housing units for first-year medical students in his name. So there's a building called Vivian Thomas Building. And I don't know the other, two of the other ones, but the fourth one is Helen Towson. Oh, cool. So those two have buildings. And Vanderbilt University Medical Center created the Vivian A. Thomas Award for Excellence in Clinical Research. Of course, he didn't see most of this, right? He passed away in the 80s? Yeah, 1985. 1985. But he was able to at least have nine years where, at, at 66, in which he received that honorary doctorate yeah. and finally got some recognition. But after he passed, his wife was like, this is where all this information comes from. His wife was like, he still adamantly always wanted to be a physician. Like, he never let go of that passion. But he kind of gracefully worked in the capacity that yeah. he was at and never got to achieve. Well. I think he made such a huge impact on so many lives, though. I mean, more than most physicians probably do, like yeah. in the in the techniques that he innovated and in all of the other physicians that he trained. Even though he didn't get to be a physician, I think that his legacy was perhaps even larger than many we've heard of. Yeah, I mean, for these people to say Thomas gave me the skills that yes. built my career to mm-hmm. be the best in the country. Yeah. Best in the world. You know, that is a huge contribution. Yeah. But the fact that the Blaylock Tausig technique, which I don't even know I mean all respect to Helen Tausig, yeah. obviously. I'm not even sure if she was in on the operation. Right. But for a technique invented by someone mm-hmm. to not even be have their name in it. Even yeah. in twenty twenty in certain capacities from major hospitals yeah. when they talk about what this technique is used for, still refers to it as the Blaylock Tausig shunt. And it's a little disparaging. Yes, it, it certainly is. And now, Blaylock is the first cardiac surgeon, right? And mm. Thomas was the one who pioneered a lot of those techniques. Yeah. Now, how many cardiac surgeries do we have a year? Like, how important is cardiac surgery now? Because with all of these, uh, with how important... Um, heart diseases in America. Yeah, yeah so um, we looked up these stats today. Heart disease is the leading cause of death for both men and women in the United States. Although I just read a New York Times article today that this year coronavirus was the leading cause of death. Wow. So, thanks, Trump. <laughs> hashtag thanks, you did Trump. It. You did it. <sighs> that is astounding. The fact that coronavirus became the leading cause of death this year. That is ridiculous. Uh, Yeah. But regardless, heart disease is still um, extremely common. And 
There are 500,000 open heart surgeries performed each year. A huge amount. Wow. And to think about 60 years ago, they were doing no open heart surgeries. Yeah. 70 years ago. Yeah, like 70 years ago. To go from there to 500,000 a year, pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, oh, this is depressing. By 2030, there is a projection that there will be about 3,000 cardiothoracic surgeons who will have to cover about 854,000 cases. So all fields of medicine, we aren't training enough doctors. I think that I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but the bottleneck is residency training, mm. and that is paid for by the U.S. government. And so even when medical schools increase the number of students that they're training, which has happened in the past five years, yeah. the numbers of residencies are not increasing. Mm. And if you don't get a residency training, you can't practice as a doctor in most places in the U.S. So if they're not going to increase residency spots, we're not going to have more doctors for our growing and aging population. I did not know it was covered by the government. Yeah. And that's also why residency salaries are so low. That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So after paying, you know, 200000 to $400,000 to go, or more, to go to medical school for four years, then for the next three to six years of your residency training, you get on average $55,000 a year. Wow. With these insane amounts of loans on your back. And actually... Um, orthopedic surgery is the highest paid specialty, which has an average of about 450K. Yeah. And an orthopedic surgeon, a guy who I follow on YouTube, Antonio Webb, who just finished his fellowship, yeah. said that as a fellow, so you already went through medical school, you already went through like five years of residency right. for training, and you're doing mm -hmm. these very expensive high-level surgeries, you only make about 50000 So within one year, you go from... So you've had, like, all these years of training. Yeah. You're doing surgeries that's probably bringing in millions of dollars mm -hmm. to whatever hospital mm -hmm. or private institution it is, and they're paying you, like, 50K. Yeah. And then within, like, one year, you get to bounce up and start making new big bucks after you, you paid your dues. I know that there's concerns that doctors get paid too much, and that is certainly fair, but for all of the debt that people go into and then all the years of still earning a not very high salary it's it's a huge financial burden on many people and especially people from lower income backgrounds who or if you have a family or um you don't have like rich parents to support you etc it just widens that divide even further so um any closing thoughts i think this was a great episode to end on Episode seven, mm -hmm. we put out a couple interviews. We conducted a few more interviews that we need to also put out, and we have more coming up soon. But this is it for season one. We'll be back in February, and we'll keep you guys updated as to specifically what date we're coming back. Yes. And this was a great first season, and I'm really proud of the work that we did and really proud of... Uh, the content we were able to put out. Mm -hmm. Me too. And also, we recently got a couple of donations. Yes. Yeah, just in general. Again, we are so 
grateful for all of you who have been listening to us, for those of you who have written reviews. That's super helpful. And um, ratings, all five stars, of course. And for those of you who are just stopping us in the building where we work and telling us how much you like our podcast, any support is appreciated. And we're just trying to build this network and spread these stories because we think they're so important to be told and encourage others. And specifically, we would just like to thank my friend Lauren Lucente, who has been Mm -hmm. a big supporter from the beginning. She's one of my med school classmates who is planning to go into psychiatry. So good for her. Thanks, Lauren. And yeah. And then also my grandma, Carolyn Conroe. So like I said, my two grandmas have been huge yeah, supporters of amazing, the podcast. Amazing. We got to send them some swag. I know. Seriously. Granny's sending y'all swag. It's on the way. <laughs> and I've gotten some questions about um, what donations are used for. So in general, we have some operating costs that so far we've kind of been paying out of pocket. So we yeah. would prefer to not have to um, pay out of pocket for that so that we can keep the podcast running and keep it sustainable. And we have people who we've been working with who've been doing really good work, and they are mostly students, and we would like to um, reimburse them for the awesome work they've been doing that so far has only been on a volunteer basis. Yeah. So, yeah, operating costs, we have to pay for things from our domain Mm -hmm. to our Gmail account. We have to pay for the the storage for our content. We also had to pay for some equipment that we have that we need to record from, like microphones and different things like that. We need more equipment. Megan needs a computer desperately. I don't know if you heard the fan just kick <laughs> on. We're going to try to edit that out. Uh, but we have to hide her computer under the table yeah. when we record because it's so messed up. It's pretty embarrassing. Lot. I got this computer. You should be embarrassed. <laughs> oh, thank you. I got this computer as like my gift to myself when I started med school even then it was a pretty cheap computer but that was also four years ago and then our uh, very thrifty we'll put it that way thrifty boss did not want to get me a work computer so using my personal laptop for work every day for the past year has really run it into the ground yeah so we need to get rid of that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um we also um again have costs we have people working on the back end we have jay as our engineer who works a lot for the podcast yeah. and you know he's a master student who's paying to go to school international mm-hmm. master student who's paying to go to school and who i don't even think is allowed to like work a real job so oh, he's yeah. very restricted in his source of income and we would like to he's a volunteer and we would like to you know get him a stipend mm-hmm. for what he's been able to do and we have other people we have Amphiti Singh mm-hmm. working on writing our articles that you can find in medium yeah so and in general like just spreading the word over the next few months is the most we can really ask like that is so helpful in spreading this network and introducing people to the podcast Mm -hmm. and uh yeah just a sneak preview of what's coming i know we've been talking about this patreon account for a while but by february we're really going to have it up and running so that's a place where you can subscribe and get access to all of the interviews that we've been conducting, which are usually video format, so you can see our lovely faces yeah. and our uh, green screen background. Yeah. 
And also we would like to network with uh, students, especially like undergrads and high schoolers who might be interested in this field and provide that encouragement for people who are curious about whether this is the right field for them. Also, we have mentioned this before, but we have merch on redbubble.com. If you search for Reclaim the Bench, if you want to wear our cool logo that we designed. Any other thoughts? Yeah, that's that's it. We don't plug the red bubble as much as kind of just sitting there, but mm-hmm. we do have um, merch that can be purchased off of there. Again, I don't think we've mentioned Medium before, mm-hmm. but you can read about you can read about this content on our website yeah. if you're avid listeners. Um, but that same material can also be found on Medium. Yeah, and Amvati usually puts some like extra details, and she's just a lovely writer. She yeah. has amazing prose. So yeah, it's so nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It's so nice. And other than that, just continue to follow us on social media, to retweet, like, mm-hmm. to subscribe on all um, or whichever major platform that you listen to podcasts. We're yep. on all of them. And oh, hope- and one more thing. We're going to start doing something next season where we want to hear from you about how you are reclaiming the bench um, yes. or someone you know. So we'll have more details on that coming soon, but we would like to get your submissions and learn more about the other people out there who are taking on this good work. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. All right. So stay safe and warm over the next few weeks. Um, Enjoy the holidays if you're celebrating, and we will talk to you soon. And also, don't forget to subscribe to Reclaim the Bench on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave a review. This is one of the best ways to support our mission of amplifying the voices of those silenced in scientific and medical discovery. For even more content, including exclusive interviews or a chance to chat with us live, become a Reclaim the Bench patron at Patreon. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Reclaim the Bench. Also, stop by ReclaimTheBench.com to see what's on the agenda and to leave comments or suggestions on what topics you'd like to see us cover next. And if you'd like to further support our podcast, you can donate through our website. Funds will help us to maintain the infrastructure necessary to continue delivering new content. 